So we're doing the last in our series on secrets of the kingdom. And uh, there's a kingdom secret that I want to talk about today, which is mentioned in every part of the Bible. It runs through the history of the church, and it occurs time and time again. Whenever there's a difficulty before great victories or preceding supernatural intervention, it's there. And it's fasting. It's fasting when it's combined with prayer. Jesus' ministry didn't start without it. A boy wasn't delivered because of a lack of it. The disciples of Jesus didn't do it, but the early church practiced it. Elders were appointed after it, and apostles sent out with it fasting. Many, well, most world revivals, including that of the early church, started with fasting. The lives of many great men and women of God were committed to it. People like Martin Luther relied upon the practice of fasting as he worked on the first translation of the Bible into German. John Calvin and John Knox were deeply committed to fasting. And virtually all the great evangelists practiced it. So Charles Finney wrote in his biography that he had frequent days of private fasting and said that whenever he felt the battery charge of the spirit going down or the anointing weakening, he would go immediately into a three-day fast. How about that? Jonathan Edwards would combine his preaching preparations with prayer and fasting. Charles Wesley fasted every Wednesday and Friday and was convinced that fasting should be a mandatory part of a minister's lifestyle and would insist that anyone ministering with him uh, would follow his practice. They didn't drink wine and they fasted. I could go on to list others who were similarly convinced. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, David Brainard, William Duma, Smith Wigglesworth, David Yonggi Cho, or you could read about the breakthrough moments in Heidi Baker's ministry, and you'll find it there too, fasting. There's often times in Heidi Baker's autobiography you read about times where she is weeping, praying, and fasting. That combination, prayer for breakthrough. All of these people, and many more that I could name, all have these or had these vital times and habits of fasting combined with prayer. And so they discovered and learned how to unlock this kingdom secret with lasting effect. So have you? Have you discovered it? Is it something that we do? Is it part of our practice? I've just forgotten my Bible here, so I'm going to need that in a second. Excuse me. If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Um. You see, fasting is one of the greatest keys to spiritual power that God has given us. But I think it's also one of the most neglected practices for Christians today. And I believe that God is calling us into a new season of prayer. That's not just us as a church. You may have heard at the Catalyst Festival that theme came through over and over again. There's a, a kind of a national burden or a calling at the moment to prayer. And for some of us, that's going to mean fasting. And uh, I'm preaching this just before we come to the opening of our 24-7 prayer room. Good timing. Um, before I get into the talk, I just want to give credit, actually, to Mahash Chavda. I don't know if you've ever read or heard or experienced Mahash Chavda. 
and his book, The Hidden Power of Prayer and Fasting. Uh, and I've got to say, his example has really helped me over the years and also in shaping this talk. I've nicked some ideas from him, so he would forgive me. I know he's a very gentle man. Let's just read Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 16 to 18, where Jesus talks about fasting. And he says these words. He says, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men that they're fasting. I'll tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put on oil on your head, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it won't be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Oh, Jesus, I just pray, Lord, as I share this message, and uh, you know the, the, the agonies that have gone into this message, because, Lord, we want to get the balance right. I want this to come with grace and with vision and with power and liberty. I just pray, Lord, as we talk about this, there will be something unlocked for us. That new season that we're hearing about prophetically, that change of strategy, Lord, I pray you do something in that realm for us and unlock this secret power of the kingdom for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, we've, this is the last of a series of talks we've been doing on, uh, this particular theme of kingdom living or, uh, whatever it is, uh, secrets of the kingdom. <laughs> And uh, so if you've missed any of the other talks, I'd recommend you catch up on the web. But as we've seen all the way through, in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' main concern is to do with outward appearance or religious observance, which doesn't match up to an inward reality. That contrast between what it looks like on the outside and what's really going on. You see, the Pharisees had the outward appearance of, of spirituality. They would fast religiously every Wednesday and Friday, uh, and they would uh, disfigure their faces to show everybody, because their inward disposition didn't match the outward manifestation of what they were trying to show. They would disfigure their faces into different shapes. They would wear rough clothes next to their skin to accentuate their self-abasement, sackcloth, rough stuff against their skin. They put ashes on their face to make themselves look pale and melancholy and all holy. And they would make a show of suffering through their fast, suffering for the Lord. It's a bit like my younger brother when we were growing up. He was a master at this. He would exaggerate any pain, particularly if that pain came from me, to get me in trouble. He was just the classic overactor. Well, the Pharisees were like this. They were attention-seeking to gain the approval of men. And Jesus didn't want us to fast like that because God sees and rewards us in the secret place. But, you know, I don't think this is our particular challenge or problem. I don't think this is our issue. I don't think we go around fasting and then we show our pain and all this kind of... I don't think that's our challenge at all, do you? Except for if you go to some prayer and fasting leaders' conferences. I sometimes wonder then... But I think perhaps the challenge for us is the question of when you fast. (laughs) Jesus says, when you fast, part of what he's saying there is, and that's what challenges us, is that he presumes that we will. 
And uh, I think if we really understood just how strategically significant and powerful fasting is, then I think it wouldn't be so much about whether we fast, but why wouldn't we? And that's what I want to release to you today. That's what I want to inspire to you today. When I understand it, when I get to grips with it, I think, for goodness sake, why don't I do this? This is going to make a massive difference to my prayer life. So I want to inspire you to prayer and fasting. And I want to look at three things. How, why, and when do we fast? How? How do we fast? Well, at its most basic level, fasting is about self-denial. It's preferring righteous choices over unrighteous ones. And that's required for everyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus. And so Jesus says on one occasion, he says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, then he, he must deny them. They must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's basic discipleship. It's basic to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You deny yourself. So how do we deny yourself? Well, you deny yourself whenever you say no to sin. When you choose forgiveness over revenge. When you give sacrificially, sacrificially, when you take time out to pray, when you serve others, when we come together as a church on Sunday rather than take the day off in bed, it's self-denial. These are all aspects of self-denial, and that's where fasting starts. It starts with self-denial. And we do these things in order to please God and to grow in our relationship with him. So if you're doing any of those things, If you're making any of those choices, you're already on the right road. You're already moving towards what it means to fast. And I just wanted to say that to encourage you. You're already on the right track. But this is only where it starts. Because ultimately, the bad news is that fasting involves abstention from food over different periods and in different ways. You can't avoid that in the end. I've really tried to find a way that I could avoid that. But but I should also say at this point that there is no New Testament ordinance for fasting. There's no command. You're not obliged to do it. But there are many biblical examples which we would do well to follow. And as I said, if we truly knew all its benefits, then why wouldn't we? But there is no requirement. But if you do, Jesus says, don't do it like the Pharisees. And there are several different kinds of fast that the Bible mentions. Firstly, there's the complete fast, which means going without food and water. So Queen Esther fasted like this and called people to fast with her like that uh, before going in to see the king and ask for the life of the Jews who were about to be exterminated. Just to point on that, if you want to go for a full fast, um, then you shouldn't do it for more than three days because otherwise you're in danger health-wise unless you're living in the actual glory of God and then it's possible. But I've never experienced that, so I've only seen what others have said about that. So that's the complete fast. The second one is the normal fast, which means going without food but drinking, drinking water. So Jesus went on that kind of fast when he did his 40-day fast in the wilderness in John chapter 4, it says that at the end of his time in the wilderness, he was hungry. It doesn't say he was thirsty, it says that he was hungry. And thirdly, there's the partial fast, sometimes called the Daniel fast, because it's sort of built on, on, on what he did, where he ate no meat, but only vegetables. Now, if you're a vegetarian, you're already doing pretty well with that one. Um, 
And this is probably the easiest one to start with, or if you can't do a normal fast for health reasons, to do a Daniel fast. And then fourthly, there is the group fast, which means fasting with others as a church or a nation. That's always good because you've all got bad breath at the same time. Um, so that's the, the group fast. And we've practiced that over many years as, as leaders in New Frontiers, uh, which I was with, with, I would say, varying success. It's not always worked for everybody, but there you go. Because when you impose it on a group, it does have a problem attached to it. It needs to be continually envisaged and understood, envisioned, I should say. Now, personally, I've never done a complete fast or felt God call me to one yet. I'm hoping he won't. <laughs> But I've certainly done many normal fasts and group fasts. And the way I I will often do it, just to help you if you want to have a go at this, um, I I try not to, well, I don't eat after an evening meal. And I don't break fast next morning. It goes on. um, And then abstain from food all day. I drink water and coffee, actually, until the next evening meal. So that's a kind of fast I do fairly regularly. And I like to break the fast in the evening meal simply because I like to eat with the family. And I think that's that's good. It's a good thing to do. And sometimes I've gone back into the fast after that. Um, but that's just a value that we have eating together as a family. And it works very well. That kind of fast is very sustainable, especially if you're working. So this is all very well. Had you fast, but why? Why would you do it? Why would you put yourself through it? If it's not required by God, it's not a commandment. Why go through all the pain and the spiritual workout which inevitably will follow? Well, there are many places throughout the Bible which give us examples of why people fasted, but the most complete reason is found in Isaiah chapter 58 when God challenges Israel because they were fasting for the wrong reasons. They were fasting to try and twist God's arm, to try and appease him or manipulate him into some way of acting. And that was very much pagan thinking. That's what the pagans would do to their God. They would cut themselves, they would fast, as you saw with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And God says, no, you don't do that with me. You know, there's a relationship here. There's a commitment here. So then Isaiah sets out the kind of fast that God has chosen, which includes at least 12 specific benefits that we gain from fasting. Now, this is a whole preaching series in itself. So I'm literally going to read it to you and then just pull out some of the words that that stand out of the benefits. And actually what's going to happen is the benefits are going to just come up on the screen as I talk through so you can follow it. To read Isaiah 58, verse 6, it starts like this. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? In other words, God says true fasting has got to affect the way that you live. It's got to have an impact or an outcome. It's not just a religious duty or it's or it's about religious observance. It's for a personal and societal transformation. If you do this, if you live like this, if you give like this, if you deny yourself in this way, then, and here come the list of benefits. Verse 8, your light will break forth like the dawn. 
It's revelation. It's a promise of revelation. Your healing will quickly appear. It's to do with health and wholeness. Your righteousness will go before you, moral purity. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. There's the guarantee of his imminent presence and protection. Then you will call and the Lord will answer and you will cry for help. And he'll say, here I am as direction promised. There's answered prayer on it, on it, uh, promise. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, there's the promise of deliverance and victory. Verse 10, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. There's the promise of promotion and honor. And the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame and you'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Which is kind of the opposite of what you think when you're going without. But what that is, is a promise of contentment and provision, sustainability. And verse 12 Promises to your children and to your work, which includes your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings, a community of restoration. And that's just for fasting. Fasting that changes your life. Fasting that seeks out what God wants, what his priorities are. If you fast like this, blessings and promises will come your way. How about that for a new prosperity doctrine? You didn't quite get that. Uh, I wasn't really being serious, but you don't hear this being promoted very much. Fast a lot and you get all sorts of benefits. Why fast? Well, your life will be transformed. Your ministry empowered. Your relationship with God will deepen. Your awareness of his presence increased. Your family will be blessed. Breakthrough will come. So again, I ask the question, why wouldn't you fast? So do you need to see some things change in your life, in your family, in your work, in your community? Perhaps you should consider fasting with prayer. So that's why do you fast? Because of incredible blessings and promises that will come your way. But when do you fast? And after you've seen the list I've just read, then perhaps you're already thinking, well, all the time, why ever eat again? I mean, if that's what God's going to promise. Now, some people, <laughs> some people understanding the benefits of fasting, uh, maintain a discipline of fasting in their lives as a matter of course. And you might find grace for that. And that would be wonderful if you can. I can't say that that has happened to me. I haven't had that ability to fast all the time, all all the time like that, as a as a discipline, particularly. Uh, but in my experience, fasting has often been done for specific reason for particular times and seasons. So I just want to take you through a whole load of examples now on on when to fast. And the first one is this: when God leads you to it, when He gives grace to you for it. When he leads you to it. So Jesus' example in Matthew chapter 4 is that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to fast and pray for 40 days. The Spirit led Jesus. He doesn't do it just because he thinks it's a good idea or even for some kind of religious exercise. In fact, he's criticized later on for not fasting with his disciples. But the Spirit leads him. 
And there are some very good reasons for that. First one is that his fast is going to lead him into a direct confrontation with the devil. (laughs) It says that he's led by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. And this is because when you fast, you'll enter a realm of spiritual warfare, which you won't enter without it, which is why it's so powerful. And it's why breakthroughs come, but it's also why fasting shouldn't be done lightly. So, for example, when uh, we first came to lead the church here in Solihull, we needed a significant breakthrough. And so God called me to fast every week and to pray for the church. And I'm not saying this to boast, um, but for around two years, I found the grace to do this. And I rarely missed a week, even in holiday time. And I had an enhanced ability to pray during this time, often long into the night, for breakthrough. And then God spoke to me at a particular time just as we launched Jubilee and said, it's time to stop. (laughs) It's done. And the compulsion to fast left me and the grace to do it was no longer available in the same way. Doesn't mean I haven't fasted since then, but not in the same way or with the same intensity that I had over that long period of time. So as I share the rest of these examples of when you should fast, be led by the Spirit. Be open to him. Ask him what he might be calling you to pray and fast about in this season, if he is, but under no other compulsion. So the second one is fasting to humble ourselves. Fasting to humble ourselves. Because pride and an independent spirit will block the flow of the spirit in our lives. This is because, as James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. And there are times in our lives, aren't there, when we need the waterways of our heart cleared out, where there's a blockage, you know, stones of disappointment and unforgiveness block the springs of living water, and we lose our sense of his favor and imminent presence in our lives. Anybody experience that? You go through those seasons, and it just feels like you're in the desert. But in our weakness, Paul says, we're strong. Fasting literally weakens us. It humbles us. It reveals our human fragility before the one who gives us life. And of course, if we humble ourselves, James promises that he will lift us up. We humble ourselves. So if you need a clear out, if you need to readdress your priorities in God, a time of fasting might be a really good way to reconnect. In fasting, you are saying, God, I'm hungry for you. I'm choosing not to eat physical food. I want the spiritual food of my relationship with you. Another reason uh, to fast is to overcome in areas of temptation and sin. There are times when we get stuck into patterns of thought or areas of sin that need to be broken. And fasting can be a way of bringing some discipline back into our lives. And a return to moral authority in places we failed. And throughout the Bible, there are many examples of, of this kind of link, this connection being made between repentance or dealing with sin and fasting. So one example, and there are many, many examples, but one example is Joel chapter 2, where God says, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. 
Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So fasting can be part of a return route to God. If you've been away from God, if you've been in rebellion, it can be a way of returning to God, a way of humbling yourself and coming to him, or a deeper work of repentance in your life. And if you need this, if you know that you need a clear, you need to deal with some stuff, then fasting might be a route back. God might be calling you to a, a period of fasting. And as I said, there are many examples in the Bible of, of the connection between sin and fasting, but I, I don't think it's necessarily a formula you always have to follow. So, you know, I sinned this week, so that means I've got to fast. That's not what I'm saying at all, but I'm talking about those areas of sin and bondage that just won't shift. Sometimes these are called besetting sins or habits that you just can't break. And Jesus, again, is our example of the victory that can be obtained through fasting, where it says he was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. So he went into the desert by by the leading of the Spirit, but he came out of the desert in the power of the Spirit, in victory. And sometimes the victory can only be won when repentance and prayer is combined with fasting. So are you serious about getting free, those areas that need unblocking and unlocking? Well, it might be worth trying fasting, seeing if God's leading you to that. The next reason is to seek greater anointing or power for specific jobs. So again, Jesus is in the desert, and it's very clear that the Spirit led him into this time to prepare him for his earthly ministry. It was only after this time of prayer, fasting, and testing, he began to preach and to perform miracles. And it's clear that the apostles followed this pattern in the early church when appointing elders in Acts chapter 14. And in Acts chapter 13, we see the leaders of the church at Antioch fasted and prayed before they laid hands on Paul and Barnabas, sending them out on their first apostolic mission. So clearly there's a, an anointing for a particular role or ministry that comes from a combination of fasting and prayer, which maybe some of us would like to commit to for our eldership appointment of Simon Clay on the 10th of July. That would be a good time to try that one out, wouldn't it? We pray and fast before we appoint him. And other times... Fasting leads us to a greater level of authority or power, such as in the deliverance of a young boy who's brought to Jesus' disciples. In Mark chapter 9, it says they're unable to cast the demon out, and they were intimidated by its power. And Jesus deals with that, and he says to the disciples, this kind can only come out with prayer and fasting, revealing that fasting is a key to greater spiritual authority. So if you need a a spiritual breakthrough, that's one of the keys. Greater authority. So there's no doubt about it. The greater the role God gives you, the greater the anointing you need, whether it's in the workplace or the church. You think you're excluded just because you're in the workplace? If you're a Christian, the kingdom of God is breaking out. So in the workplace, you need his anointing too. Or any new responsibility, then you need you need something from God to do that. If you feel God's leading you into a time of promotion, then I would encourage you to consider a time of fasting to prepare you. Amen? Are you staying with me or are you all going sleepy on me? It's a bit warm in here, isn't it? Oh, you're getting hungry. 
I thought about standing at the front and eating a baguette as I was talking about this, but uh, there's no refreshments afterwards, by the way. We've cancelled them. (laughs) Just a couple more I want to share with you. In times of crisis is a good time to look at fasting. In times of national crisis especially, the people of God need to pray and fast if we're to follow the biblical example. So Jehoshaphat, he called a national fast when Israel was threatened by Edom in 2 Chronicles. Ezra called for a national fast when the Jews returned to the Promised Land in Ezra chapter 8. Queen Esther, as I said earlier, called for a complete fast at the threat of total extermination of the Jews because of Haman and so on. And today, too, we we are seeing national and international crises, aren't we, as we look around the world. And and actually, it, it worries me slightly that we see so much that we don't become numb to it. Every day on our television screens, we see things, and Jesus says, look and see the fields of white to harvest. We have a lot of responsibility to pray, I think, for our world at the moment with what we're seeing. I wonder if we need to learn to fast and pray for our world, for our national situation, even for the imminent European referendum. It's not a crisis yet, but certainly a decision that will have significant effect on on Europe and our freedom and so on. Either way, I think we need to pray about that. But also in the face of personal crisis, illness, accident, financial hardships, family breakthrough and so on, we, we should consider fasting as we pray. God, we need a breakthrough. We need a breakthrough in this area as a family, as an individual, in my job situation. Maybe consider a a partial fast at least as you pray into that. Another reason is when we're seeking direction. When we're seeking direction. So fasting when seeking direction sends a clear message to God that you take his will seriously for your life. What do you want me to do, Lord? Where do you want me to go? My priority in that fast is saying it's his kingdom over this kingdom. Your will, not mine, be done. I know Chris and Tina uh, took this approach when they moved to Solihull over their time out last year. They prayed and they fasted for direction. And God spoke powerfully to them. But it doesn't just have to be about church and church ministry. It could be about who you should marry. Whether you should marry what career you choose, which city you should live in. Humbling yourself in fasting is a sure way to hear God's plans for your life or for a significant redirection. I mean, there's a powerful example in the early church when Peter was fasting on the roof one day and praying when suddenly God gave him a vision and he fell into a trance. And that vision was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now just think if he hadn't been doing that. Now, for a Jewish man, that was some change of direction uh, that even today I think we live in the good of, don't we? Any Gentiles here? And the final good reason to fast is to worship God, just as an act of worship. Luke chapter 2 tells the story of a, a lady who I'd love to meet. She's 84 years old, and she was a prophetess called Anna. In verse 37, it says that she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day with fasting and prayer. What a lovely lady she must have been. Anyone aspire to be have an Anna ministry? That'd be a great one. Anna was devoted to God, and fasting was one expression of her love for him. 
And sometimes we, we fast just to do that and just say, Lord, I love you. I just want to spend some time with you. I'm committing myself to that. Spending time with him, prioritizing our relationship with him and growing in intimacy. How about trying that one? Okay, so that's how, what, whatever I said, how, what, where, when, hi. Um, so why don't we fast then? Why don't we fast? If there are so many benefits promised to us, so many good reasons to do it, why don't we fast? So just in closing, I, I, I just want to say three quick points here. Why don't we fast? Because we like to eat, possibly. But I think there are three areas that I hope we've undone a bit today. One is fear, one is ignorance, and one is spiritual appetite. Fear. It's funny you think fear when it comes to fasting, but it's a real thing. It's kind of fear of the unknown. It's fear of feeling hungry, bizarrely. Have you ever felt that fear? Afraid of starting and not finishing, condemnation, failure. Afraid of fasting alone. And, you know, the enemy has convinced us that we couldn't do it anyway. (laughs) That it's too hard for us. It's only for very spiritual people. No, it's not. Instead of looking to the power of the Holy Spirit, we, we become consumed with our own weakness and paralyzed by fear. The very reason why we need to fast, so that God can break that in our lives. And secondly, ignorance. I I think um, many Christians simply haven't been taught about the importance of seeking God in this way. You know, churches don't often encourage fasting. I don't think I've ever called a fast for us as a church. Um, And in many cases, it never gets mentioned. And I I grew up in a Bible-believing church, but I don't remember ever hearing a message of fasting in my Christian life. And finally, and perhaps more seriously, we don't fast because we've lost our spiritual appetite. And we're no longer hungry for God. John Piper says some pretty straight words, as usual. I I wondered whether to read this or not, but it kind of says something that I can't say. And he says this, the absence of fasting is the measure of our contentment with the absence of Christ. And he goes on to say, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because we've drunk deeply and are satisfied, but it's because we've nibbled so long at the table of the world, our soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. Whew! He doesn't hold back much, does he? But listen, this is how I want to finish on this. Are you hungry for God? Have you still got your hunger for God or have you lost it? Do you long for him? And how much priority for him and his kingdom do you have in your life right now? Because, you know, fasting is one of the ways that we can demonstrate this hunger in the secret place where only God sees. And only God knows. So I submit this to you. And I want to challenge you to, to pray about this seriously and say, God, are you calling me to fast for any of these things? Or are you calling us as a couple or us as a family? <coughs> there are different kinds of fasting we can do. Do you know one of the good 
fast that we can do is not watch so much telly and spend some time with God. Instead, fast from telly for a week. Fast from Netflix series and just spend some time with God. Right, well, I just want to pray for you and uh, then we're going to close there and we're going to go and have something to eat because it looks like we all are desperately hungry now. So, But I hope I've created hunger for God and hunger for his presence. That's what I felt was my burden in sharing this message with you today. Should we just stand for a moment and uh, I just want to pray for you. I'm going to just pray for you, and then I just feel like it would be good if we could pray for one another. And if you're visiting, uh, I don't want you to get weirded out by this idea, but it's good to just bless one another as well. So if you don't know anybody, then feel free just to say, no, thank you. I don't know you. Um, but it'd just be good to support one another in this. I believe that we're on the verge, as, as we were hearing earlier prophetically, there's a wave about to break. Uh, we're on the verge of something quite amazing, and that's why I think God's calling us to pray. Prayer and fasting always precedes revival. Amen. So, Lord, we just want to present ourselves to you. <coughs> and, Lord, we thank you that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. You're not here to condemn us today, but you're here to inspire us of who we are and the authority that we have. You've given us authority to to speak to mountains and tell them to move. You've given us authority to speak to valleys and say, come up and make a path for my feet. You've given us authority over the enemy. You've given us authority in spiritual warfare that having done all, we just stand. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would show us the area of authority that you have for each one of us in this season of our lives and as a church. Lord, you've not called us to be weak doormats, but to be powerful intercessors for the glory of your kingdom. Lord, we just want to embrace this teaching today and say thank you for just reminding us about it. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. We really needed that, Lord. But now, Lord, would you give us the grace to follow it through in the day today. For your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen.